This audio lecture is based entirely upon the casebook, Professional Responsibility, an open source casebook by Brian L. Fry and Elizabeth Schiller. The casebook is licensed Creative Commons Zero, no rights reserved. That means that the authors have explicitly disclaimed any copyright claim in all of the original elements that they created in writing this casebook and have intentionally placed the casebook in the public domain. Much thanks is due to Brian and Elizabeth for writing this book and placing it in the public domain for everybody to use. In furtherance of this spirit of open source, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Zero, No Rights Reserved. I hope you enjoy. Welcome everybody to Section 3 of the Practice of Law Lectures. In this section, we'll be talking about the legal duties of an attorney. First, fiduciary duties. Attorneys are fiduciaries of their clients. As fiduciaries, they have certain legal duties to their clients, which include the duty of care, that is, ordinary care under the circumstances, the duty of loyalty, absolute loyalty, the duty of impartiality, absolute candor, and the duty of confidentiality. The duties of care, loyalty, impartiality, and confidentiality attach whenever an attorney-client relationship begins and may continue after an attorney-client relationship ends. Accordingly, attorneys may owe duties to both current and former clients, which may affect an attorney's ability to continue representing those clients or to represent new clients. The duty of care. Attorneys must exercise reasonable care when representing their clients. Typically, courts expect attorneys to use the degree of care expected of an ordinary attorney in similar circumstances. In other words, the duty of care imposed on an attorney is a duty of professional care, reflecting the expectations of both the client and other attorneys. An attorney who fails to exercise reasonable care is negligent and may be liable in tort for malpractice. Attorneys may have a duty of care to both current and former clients, and any negligent act in relation to representation of a client may create a malpractice claim. In order to prove a malpractice claim for a breach of the duty of care, the plaintiff must show that a duty of care existed. The attorney breached the duty of care, and the breach caused a harm to the plaintiff. A duty of care exists only if an attorney-client relationship exists. So the first element of a malpractice claim for negligence is proving the existence of an attorney-client relationship. The duty of loyalty. Attorneys are fiduciaries of their clients because clients justifiably vest confidence 
good faith, reliance, and trust in their attorneys. Accordingly, attorneys have a fiduciary duty to maintain an undivided loyalty to their clients at all times. Attorneys must ensure that their duties to their clients never conflict with their own financial interests, the interests of another client, or any other interest that would affect their ability to provide competent and diligent representation. Under the duty of loyalty, attorneys cannot represent anyone with an interest adverse to one of their clients because it would create a conflict of interest. If that interest becomes an issue, the attorney's loyalty would be divided between the two clients. Obviously, an attorney cannot represent two parties with interests directly adverse to each other, like opposing parties in litigation. Because the conflict of interest is fundamental and unavoidable, But the restriction imposed by the duty of loyalty applies more broadly. Any adverse or potentially adverse interest may create a conflict of interest, even if that interest is not yet at issue. The duty of impartiality. As fiduciaries of their clients, attorneys have a duty to provide candid and impartial advice. In order to satisfy the duty of impartiality, attorneys must be able to exercise their independent professional judgment without any conflicts of interest. If a client's interests are adverse or potentially adverse to the attorney's interests or the interests of another client, a conflict of interest exists that will compromise the attorney's impartiality. Under those circumstances, attorneys will have an incentive to provide advice that benefits themselves or their other clients and withhold advice that does not. Even if the client is not harmed by the advice itself, the client is harmed by not receiving candid and impartial advice reflecting the full range of available options. For example, if an attorney represents a client in a contract negotiation and the outcome of the negotiation could affect the interests of another client, a conflict of interest exists because the attorney has an incentive to provide advice that will benefit the other client and withhold advice that will harm the other client. Even if the advice benefits both clients, the client receiving the advice is harmed by not receiving candid and impartial advice. Likewise, if an attorney both represents and has a financial interest in a corporation, a conflict of interest exists because the attorney has an incentive to provide advice that will benefit the attorney's investment and withhold advice that will not, depriving the client of the full range of options. Model Rule 2.1, Advisor, states that in representing a client, a lawyer shall exercise independent professional judgment 
and render candid advice. In rendering advice, a lawyer may refer not only to law, but to other considerations such as moral, economic, social, and political factors that may be relevant to the client's situation. Duty of Confidentiality As fiduciaries of their clients, attorneys also have a duty to maintain the confidentiality of private information disclosed to them by their clients. Under the duty of confidentiality, attorneys must never disclose confidential client information to a third party not bound by the duty of confidentiality or use confidential client information to benefit themselves or another client. Clients are entitled to confide in their attorney, secure in the knowledge that the confidential information they disclose cannot be used against them. If a client's interests are adverse or potentially adverse to the attorney's interests or the interests of another client, a conflict of interest exists that will compromise the attorney's ability to maintain confidentiality. Under those circumstances, attorneys have an incentive to use the confidential information for their own benefit or the benefit of their other client. Even if the client is not harmed by the use of the confidential information, the client is harmed by the betrayal of trust. Model Rule 1.6, Confidentiality of Information, states that a lawyer shall not reveal information relating to the representation of a client unless the client gives informed consent. The disclosure is impliedly authorized in order to carry out the representation or the disclosure is permitted. Limitations on the Duties of an Attorney While the absolute duties of loyalty, impartiality, and confidentiality are the quintessence of professional responsibility, they are necessarily observed in the breach. Taken literally, they would inevitably preclude attorneys from ever representing more than one client. It is always possible that the interests of a potential client will conflict with those of a current client. It is always possible that advice given to one client will affect the interests of another client. And it is always possible that confidential information disclosed by one client will be relevant to another. In practice, the duties of an attorney must yield to the practical realities of representation. Accordingly, the duties of attorneys are shaped by the rights of clients, attorneys, and the bar. Clients are entitled to hire the attorney of their choice and may consent to representation, despite a formal conflict. Attorneys are entitled to represent more than one client, so long as they disclose any conflicts and the client consents. And the bar is entitled to prevent parties from using conflicts strategically to disqualify opposing counsel. 
In other words, clients may provide informed consent to certain conflicts of interest. Attorneys may represent clients with conflicts of interest under certain circumstances, so long as the clients provide informed consent. And under certain circumstances, the bar may even permit attorneys to represent parties with conflicting interests without consent. However, attorneys must always observe the duty of care. An attorney who fails to exercise reasonable care under the circumstances is negligent and potentially liable for malpractice, even if the client consents. The Appearance of Impropriety The ABA has long held that judges should avoid the appearance of impropriety. When the ABA adopted the Canons of Judicial Ethics in 1924, Canon 4 held that judges should avoid the appearance of impropriety. When it adopted the Code of Judicial Conduct in 1972, Canon 2 held that a judge should avoid the appearance of impropriety in all his actions. When it adopted the Model Code of Judicial Conduct in 1990, Canon 2A maintained the appearance of impropriety standard, holding that the test for the appearance of impropriety is whether the conduct would create in reasonable minds a perception that the judge's ability to carry out judicial responsibilities with integrity, impartiality, and competence is impaired. And Rule 1.2 of the Revised Model Rules of Judicial Conduct retains the same standard. But lawyers have resisted applying the appearance of impropriety standard to themselves. When the ABA adopted the Model Code of Professional Responsibility in 1969, it included the appearance of impropriety standard only as an ethical consideration rather than a disciplinary rule, making it aspirational rather than mandatory. And when the ABA adopted the Model Rules of Professional Conduct in 1983, it eliminated the appearance of impropriety standard entirely. Now moving to malpractice. Attorneys may be liable for malpractice if they violate any of their fiduciary duties of care, loyalty, impartiality, or confidentiality. However, the standard for liability may differ depending on the duty at issue. Attorneys may be liable for a violation of the duty of care only if they are negligent, but they may be liable for any violation of the duties of loyalty, impartiality, and confidentiality. Under the duty of care, attorneys must always exercise reasonable care under the circumstances. Attorneys are professionals, so the professional standard of care applies. In other words, an attorney must exercise the standard of care that an ordinary attorney would exercise under similar circumstances. If an attorney breaches the duty of care, then the attorney is negligent, and may be liable in tort for malpractice. By contrast, under the duties of loyalty, impartiality, and confidentiality, 
Attorneys must always avoid conflicts of interest, provide candid advice, and protect confidential information. Any violation of these duties is a tort, irrespective of negligence. In effect, they are analogous to strict liability torts. Legal malpractice is a tort with the same basic elements as any other tort claim, duty, breach, causation, and damages. An attorney has a duty only if an attorney-client relationship exists. Accordingly, the plaintiff in an action claiming legal malpractice must prove existence of an attorney-client relationship, breach of a legal duty, factual causation of harm, proximate causation of harm, and actual damages. Legal duty. Attorneys owe legal duties to their clients, but do not owe legal duties to non-clients. Accordingly, the threshold question in a malpractice action is whether the plaintiff is a client to whom the attorney owes legal duties. Breach of duty. If an attorney-client relationship exists, then the attorney owes certain legal duties to the client. In order to prevail in a malpractice claim, the plaintiff must prove that the attorney breached one of those legal duties. However, different duties have different liability standards. For example, the duty of care requires attorneys to exercise reasonable care under the circumstances. But the duty of loyalty requires absolute loyalty. Causation of harm. Clients can recover from malpractice only if their attorney's negligence was both the factual or but-for cause and proximate cause of a legally cognizable harm. An attorney who is negligent but causes no harm is not liable for malpractice. Courts typically apply the suit-within-a-suit or trial-within-a-trial doctrine to legal malpractice actions. Under this doctrine, the fact-finder must determine not only how the attorney's breach of duty affected the action, but also how the action would have ended without the breach of duty. In other words, the client must prove that the attorney's breach of duty caused a foreseeably worse outcome. Accordingly, an attorney is not liable for malpractice if the client's injury was inevitable. For example, an attorney who negligently fails to file an action with no chance of success is not liable for negligence. But what if the action had a small chance of success? What if the action had no chance of success but still had settlement value. In an action for transactional malpractice, the client must prove that the attorney's breach of duty caused a worse outcome than non-breach would have caused. For example, the client could show that alternative actions would have produced a better result. The client must also prove that the attorney's negligence was the proximate cause of the injury. In other words, the plaintiff must prove that a reasonable attorney, under the circumstances, 
would have foreseen the injury. In theory, causation is a straightforward concept. Attorneys are liable for malpractice only if their actions caused a harm that they could have foreseen. But in practice, causation of harm and foreseeability can be difficult to determine in the face of diverse probabilities and uncertain counterfactuals. Damages. The plaintiff in a legal malpractice action can only recover actual damages. It can only recover damages that were reasonably foreseeable by the defendant. As a consequence, the plaintiff must prove the amount of damages and cannot recover speculative damages. Now, ineffective assistance of counsel. The Sixth Amendment and the Due Process Clause guarantee criminal defendants the right to the effective assistance of counsel. In Gideon v. Wainwright, the Supreme Court held that indigent criminal defendants are entitled to appointed counsel in all felony cases. And in Strickland v. Washington, it held that appointed counsel must provide a competent defense. If a criminal defendant receives ineffective assistance of counsel, then any conviction is unconstitutional and void. However, courts evaluating ineffective assistance of counsel claims are highly deferential to the decisions of appointed counsel and will provide relief only if counsel's decisions are both unreasonable and prejudicial. Accordingly, ineffective assistance of counsel claims are difficult to prove unless counsel provided no defense at all or had a conflict of interest. The U.S. Constitution Amendment Number 6 states that in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law, and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. In Strickland versus Washington, the Supreme Court established the rules governing ineffective assistance of counsel claims in criminal cases in the landmark case. In Strickland, the court held that due process in the counsel clause of the Sixth Amendment guarantees all criminal defendants the right to the effective assistance of counsel. The benchmark for judging any claim of ineffectiveness must be whether counsel's conduct so undermined the proper functioning of the adversarial process that the trial cannot be relied on as having produced a just result. In order to prove a claim for ineffective assistance of counsel, a criminal defendant must show that counsel violated the duty of care or loyalty and that the violation prejudiced the defendant. Quote, First, the defendant must show that counsel's performance was deficient. This requires showing that counsel made errors so serious that counsel was not functioning as the counsel guaranteed 
the defendant by the Sixth Amendment. Second, the defendant must show that the deficient performance prejudiced the defense. This requires showing that counsel's errors were so serious as to deprive the defendant of a fair trial, a trial whose result is reliable. End quotes. The evaluation of counsel's performance must be highly deferential and judge the reasonableness of counsel's challenge conduct on the facts of the particular case, viewed as of the time of counsel's conduct. Accordingly, the defendant, quote, must identify the acts or omissions of counsel that are alleged not to have been the result of reasonable professional judgment. And the court must then determine whether, in light of all circumstances, the identified acts or omissions were outside the wide range of professionally competent assistance. End quote. In addition, the defendant must show that counsel's unreasonable conduct was prejudicial. Any deficiencies in counsel's performance must be prejudicial to the defense in order to constitute ineffective assistance under the Constitution. There is a legal presumption of prejudice if the defendant was actually or constructively denied the assistance of counsel. The government interfered with representation or counsel had a conflict of interest that adversely affected performance. But if counsel violated the duty of care, the defendant must show that counsel's unreasonable conduct was actually prejudicial. The defendant must show that there is a reasonable probability that, but for counsel's unprofessional errors, the result of the proceeding would have been different. Malpractice in criminal cases. Criminal defense attorneys who provide negligent representation may also be liable to their clients in tort for malpractice. However, most courts have adopted a different standard for evaluating malpractice claims in civil and criminal representation, holding that criminal defendants can recover for malpractice only if they prove actual innocence. In other words, where civil clients only have to prove that they would have won in order to recover an illegal malpractice action, criminal clients have to prove that they were entitled to win on the merits. Thanks, everybody. That's all I'd like to talk about in this section. Take care.